You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. So once again, good morning, uh, welcome. Thank you for being here on this rather rainy day, but I'm trying to bring some sunshine into your life and I'm sure young people here who are here as well with their passion and energy will also make this a very sunny day. So, you know, in Brussels and other European capitals, we often meet to discuss our neighborhood, especially our southern neighborhood. We reflect on it. What's right, what's wrong, what can we do together to make things better? How do we tackle the challenges? But I don't know if you've noticed, but often that discussion, some people from the region are, are missing. And most importantly, what's missing is the voice of youth of the region. And it's actually quite remarkable that this is the case, because if you look at the figures, 65% of the population in the southern Mediterranean, in the Mediterranean, is under 30. And this is a youthful, youthful region, and their voice is not being heard. Often, I mean, the governments, people in the region, see youth as a liability, not as an asset. So we are here are trying to change that paradigm. We're trying to change that situation. Friends of Europe has its own European Young Leaders program, and we have a MENA uh, chapter as well. Of course, the Anna Lynn Foundation has the network known as the Young Mediterranean Voices. Now, you'll hear more about it later during the panel, just to say it's really a very impressive network of young people on both banks of the Mediterranean coming together, working together, discussing things. And, you know, I've been involved with them for some time, and what's really remarkable about this network is that it's bottoms up, so it's not government-nominated young people, you know, speaking for the authorities. It's really authentic, independent voices. And also, when you look at the region, you often see silos. Governments don't really talk to each other. What's really remarkable about this network is all the young people talk to each other, make friendships, cross-border uh, partnerships, etc. So it's really, really good. My, my final point would be, if you are and I hope you are, interested in this discussion on young people, two documents that I would really recommend that you look at. One is the United Nations Security Council Resolution 2250, adopted a couple of years ago, which talks about the role, the essential role of youth in peace and security, in building sustainable peace and security. And the second is the Anna Lind report on intercultural trends. And you know, when you read that, you realize how little we really know about what people in this region are thinking, how many of our prejudices get in the way. So this is the debut, uh, Brussels debut, of the Young Mediterranean Voices. And, and three points come across, and I'll just uh, end there. First is the disconnect between uh, young people and the rulers, the governors, the governments, if you like. The second is this mistrust that's also part of this equation. And the third thing is, as I said earlier, no sustainable peace, no sustainable prosperity uh, anywhere without the involvement of young people. So that's just to set the scene for this panel. And as you'll see, we have four very eminent panelists to take this discussion further. First of all, Elizabeth Gigou, 
no real introduction needed in this town. She's president of the Annalyn Foundation and one of the feminist pioneers in France, used to be Minister of Justice, but also been a very prominent figure uh, in, in the European Parliament, in the European Union more generally. So really delighted to have you with us, Elizabeth. Uh, also with me, Esmat uh, El-Sayed. She's a young Mediterranean voice and a delegate to the Africa-EU Summit. So we're going to hear from you authentically about what your aspirations are. Uh, very, very proud to have with us Bjorn Ila. He is founder of the Khalifa Ila Institute, and he's an activist, a speaker, an academic, working to promote peace um, and human rights. And uh, he is a survivor of the horrific massacre on the island of Toya in Norway in 2011. So really, really happy to have you here. Bjorn. And last but not least, with us, Fadi Kuran. He's a senior campaigner at Avaz, uh, which is an online campaigning network. I think all of you know it, and also Amina, young leader for uh, Friends of Europe. So, uh, enough from me. I'm Shada Islam, director at Friends of Europe. We're going to kick off with you, Elizabeth. Yes, please. So, president of the Anna Lind Foundation, also very uh, engaged with the young people here, also very, very knowledgeable about the Intercultural Trends Report. How do you see, what are your experiences of talking to the young people? What are the main priorities and concerns that we should be addressing? Please take the microphone. Uh, yeah. Does it work? Yes. Can yes. Yes, yes, it's there, Elizabeth. Just speak. Okay. Well, thank you, Shonda. Um, well, in, in my uh, very long political career, since uh, <laughs> I have the privilege of age here, uh, I have learned one thing, one very important thing, is that uh, we should listen rather than begin by talking to uh, youth. Uh, and I have always been very keen in having uh, associative uh, engagements uh, as part of my political life because uh, I think that there is any political project will fail if there is not a link with civil society. Mm. This is why I'm very proud of uh, uh, being the president of the Annaline Foundation since uh, been there since uh, 2015. And uh, it's true that uh, uh, with all our partnership with Friends of Europe, we were very happy about that. I think it's very good to mix our young Mediterranean uh, voices, uh, laureates, with uh, young leaders, uh, but also with the United Nations. You quoted the uh, uh, resolution. It was a very important step to consider that, uh, that youth could be an asset to build peace and not a threat. As is all uh, uh, the case so so often. So uh, it's true, as you said, that there is a trust gap. So the question is, how do we bridge this gap? And um, uh, we have to uh, uh, realize that young people are not in the waiting. They are not blasé, as we say in, in France. They want to learn, they want to understand, and uh, most important, they want to act. And uh, uh, I think that uh, uh, member states of the European Union and member states of the uh, South Mediterranean countries have to invest more in youth and in youth initiatives. Uh, our research on intercultural trends, which is a very important research in 13 countries, 
13,000 people uh, uh, every three years, very, you know, it's not only a, a poll, a not ordinary poll, show uh, that uh, uh, investment in youth-led uh, initiatives and in education is perceived by uh, the, uh, the whole of the people to the best answer to conflict and to radicalization. And this is why uh, uh, we have to support more youth-led initiatives uh, in public life, uh, because I am absolutely convinced, and we are convinced, that it is the best way to prevent uh, conflict uh, uh, emerging everywhere. And uh, the third uh, thing I, would, I wanted to say, uh, Shonda, is that the question is now not whether we should address to youth and support initiatives, but how can we do, how can we do that? And uh, I think that building powerful networks, uh, like the ones we have here, uh, young Mediterranean voices and uh, young uh, leaders, is really the best way to multiply practices, to uh, identify good practices, to exchange experience, of course, to learn from the other, which is at the basis of uh, intercultural uh, dialogue. And uh, we have to invent new tools. For example, uh, this year, uh, uh, the Annaline Foundation has been chosen by the uh, European Commission, and we are very proud about that, uh, to uh, promote the Erasmus Plus Virtual. Mm -hmm. uh, that's exchange on the net to have another, you know, something else that all these fake news and, and, and even worse uh, than that. But this is very good. But nothing will replace physical contact and physical exchange. And this is why, uh, as president of the Annaline Foundation, I say we should complete that by an Erasmus of associations. Mm -hmm. In the uh, Annaline Foundation, we have 5,000 NGOs in all our uh, national uh, networks. And therefore, they should be held no more. Now, this is something I observe when I talk of uh, this initiative to all, you know, European leaders. They say, and, and South Mediterranean leaders, I, I have done that in all the meetings I'm invited in. Uh, they say, how wonderful. But nobody does anything about that. We've got to press for that in the European Parliament, but because the more we close, we Europeans, our borders, and even in the South, because we are, you know, our people are all afraid about all these uh, migration uh, population that we cannot uh, regulate, the more this thing will, uh, you know, uh, inflate, and the more we have to invent new ways, legal ways, of course, to uh, have between us, you know, a circulation of the people. And I think this is a very, uh, a very demanding uh, uh, challenges. And our partnership with you, Friends of Europe, with the British Council, it's very important, Young Mediterranean Voices has been created with the British Council. We have to expand that to Young Euromed Voices and to make it a tool to have this uh, uh, Erasmus of, uh, of associations, because I think that we, we really have a real challenge to, to bring intercultural dialogue and in widen 
uh, Wadden uh, uh, communities. Thank you, Chanda. Thank you, Elizabeth. I'm just going to follow up a, a tiny little bit with you. You've made a very, very salient point, right, about listening, learning from each other, and the, 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 the power of networks. And you've said invest in youth-led initiatives, and you have an initiative there that you think is really worthwhile promoting, and I absolutely agree with you. Where will the funding, I'm sorry to bring up the money, the M question so early on in the discussion, but where do you think this should come from? It should be a joint effort, right? Oui. Uh, yes, of course. Uh, the Annaline Foundation is jointly financed by the European uh, Commission budget and by member states. Well, some member states are better than the others, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway. And so we have to, uh, to consider that it would be a great asset in the next financial perspectives in the European Union, which which are right beginning time. to be discussed and will be decided yeah. by the end of 2019, to say that we have a real... Uh, the, the, the Erasmus uh, project is the one which uh, is still very popular. Mm -hmm. It's the thing that is visible to the citizens. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we have to use this golden uh, tool mm -hmm. to say we can make it an instrument for exchanging, uh, you know, between Europe and the South Mediterranean country and even more with Africa. Yes, I'm very glad that you are here because I think that, you know, the, the uh, Sahara is no, no, no longer a border and this is where we have uh, most of the problems that affect African countries at large and European mm -hmm. countries. And therefore, uh, so we will have to find fundings. Of course, we can we can begin, you know, with a small project. For example, uh, uh, awarding uh, to the best project, uh, you know, maybe ten or hundred uh, awards a year. What would it cost? But it would be a beginning for that. And of course, I will talk uh, uh, of that project to the European Parliament this afternoon right. because I have always have contacts, you know, with uh, members of the Euro European Parliament, and I think that uh, that we should we, we should be able to have private funding as well right. for such project. Right. So multiple stakeholders, starting small, possibly, but then expanding. It is ambitious, and I think ac actually one of the strengths of Europe is the Erasmus program. You're so right. So thank you very much for that A very interesting idea. Let me turn to Esmat. Esmet, uh, Mediterranean Voice, uh, also going to the EU-Africa Summit, um, involved in all kinds of activities. What, are, what do you see as your main concerns, your main priorities, and what are you doing that you would like to convey to us as being different from what, uh, let's say, the adults in the room do? Oh, thank you for the question. Um, I'll divide it to two parts. I'll, I'll cover first the part of what we actually want. Um, as a young person, I will use the word we all the time because it's I relate to every single thing. So um, through talking to my peer colleagues and through my experience, whenever I talk, I ask and I hear the word freedom, that we want freedom. And then when we break down freedom, we want freedom of expression, we want freedom of mobility, we want freedom of actually choosing our career choices to not to have the limit on that. So um, I'll try to be a little bit positive in terms of pushing for alternative solution on how we see that because I kind of feel like we have talked a lot about 
we need, we need, we need. And we go, we meet politicians. Politicians like to take photos with us. <laughs> we like to take photos with politicians. But then the actual thing that we advocate for is still not there yet. Um, so I'll come first to the freedom of mobility. And in that, I'm, I think we need to push for alternative solutions. We need to use technology now, like the Erasmus Virtual Exchange, for example, like um, dialogue platforms, like online tools that allows us to interact so that we can have an intercultural uh, dialogue amongst us. Um, it's no longer South, North, or Africa, Europe. Now we're all on Facebook, now we're all on the internet, now we're all super connected. I think um, how many people here have Facebook? Show of hands. Um, and, and using Skype and Hangouts, too much like tools, and, and the technology has been adding to that. So now we have platforms where we can actually have a room where we can have a dialogue of 10 people, we all see each other, and we have an exchange, an intercultural exchange, which is a great opportunity that we need to look at it on a positive side, that it's going to empower many people living in small cities and rural areas to still interact and discuss topics and exchange views, not just a normal chat or, or a Facebook comment, but to have an intercultural dialogue that is facilitated with people from all over the world. Uh, speaking about freedom of expression here, it's also about being heard. I know that we, uh, we were looking forward to be heard, um, maybe through the past five years with the Erasmus as so, and, and so many advocacy initiatives happening in the past few years, we were heard, but we're not taken seriously. So that's the main issue now that we have on the top, that we are not being taken seriously and we need to push for, to advocate for, for what we want. Um, we need jobs, we need paid internships, uh, we need funds for our projects, for entrepreneurial ideas, for, for the new initiatives that are being run. Um, and we also need support, like institutional support for these ideas. It's not just the fund, but also the recognition and the support with the mechanisms and evaluation methodologies and so on. Um, in being here, I divide it into two parts. The part of the structured dialogue, where we need to always, as, as young people, keep in the front of our heads that we are responsible to communicate our ideas to the decision makers and to put ourselves in their shoes and to provide an alternative solution, to not just to go say, we have this and this and this and these are the issues, please solve it, but to be more proactive in terms of going there, coming with a solution, advocate for, and since we are humans and this is always going, that the decision maker is eventually a human being, everyone who is running offices, people, are humans, they see issues, they interact with it, they, they sense it, they see it around them and their families and so on, there will be always a space to mediate and to, to reach a solution, to add the experience to the passion. Um, and I actually will finish with the idea of forming the narrative, because as young people, we suffer a lot from the negative narrative, and we need to change the narrative. How we can do that? We could also be the alternative narrative. So the every extra step we go in terms of going the extra mile to have an intercultural dialogue, to know someone 
um, from a culture that all I knew about was through the media or the stereotypes, to go in an exchange, to talk to someone who is different, right. to, to be open-minded. Um, this is how we form the alternative narrative. Uh, this is how we stop fake news from being spread. This is how we counter hate speech and violent narratives and stereotypes and so on. And this is how we could step a little more right. further into inclusive societies. Uh, the concept of, of youth peace and security is very connected because youth can be the ones who are peace builders and youth are sometimes considered as the, the security issue. So we also need to think innovatively of how we can change that narrative and prove that we actually are not a security issue, we are an opportunity and we need to change that so that we can reach more freedom of mobility. We can have a larger outreach in that. Um, I'm just like giving my yeah, ideas I'm going to, here. It's very, very, very good ideas. I'm going to, I promise you the sunshine, right? Um, uh, I'm going to just push you on a little thing. So no, not just photo opportunities. You want to be not just heard, but taken seriously. And you want uh, not just security issues and alternative narratives. Give me an example of where you're doing that. Where are you putting forward an alternative narrative altogether, uh, say, within the Mediterranean Voices? Well, within the Young Mediterranean Voices, and since it's been the Young Air Voices, it's been eight years now, and we're having a dialogue and a debate opportunities where people from the South and the North sit together, cooperate together to debate issues that are main topics for youth. Um, in the Young Arab Voices, it's been always the opportunity for youth coming from the South countries, where the situation was in fire, and this was the safe space for people to sit and talk and put their ideas in an organized way. Um, it's always possible to sit in a cafe and have an argument about something that's going on, and, and to not to be structured, but actually allowing youth to stay in, in a dialogue right. which is a structured communication tool and argue about the same things and express their views in a kind of um, respected way or in a dialogue where the purpose is to actually feel included and make everyone around you feel included by listening not to rebuttal or to respond, by listening to understand and to, to open your mind. So this is, this is how we do it. Yeah, that's right. So step by step, getting to know each other, already changing the dynamics of your interconnections, right? OK, great. Thank you very much, Esmat. I'm sure there'll be more questions for you. I'm going to turn now to Bjorn. Uh, Bjorn, you have been, as I said, an activist following the horrible tragedy that we witnessed in 2011 in Norway uh, for peace, for human rights. Tell us a little bit about, let's say, things you are proud of that you have done since then that have changed a little bit the perspectives, the way we look at young people as, uh, and peace? So I think, um, first of all, kind of acknowledging the fact that um, the Anna Lynn Foundation is, is named after Anna Lynn, who was one of the earlier political assassinations in, in Scandinavia and, and myself being a survivor of, of the terrorist attack in 2011. I think it's, it's worthwhile um, recognizing the fact that even though Scandinavia is perceived as, as a very peaceful place, and largely it is. It is a place where also political assassinations happen and where political uh, attacks happen. And I think that was part of kind of 
what spun me into to the work I do now, which largely is about bursting bubbles and getting communities to, to speak to each other, people who have radically different political and societal opinions and worldviews and, and lifestyles. And so kind of breaking down those barriers um, has been an incredibly challenging and an incredibly re rewarding thing that I've been working towards. Um, and I think one of the kind of best things that has happened over the course of the, the seven years that I've been working on this uh, since then has been uh, the recognition of the fact that young people aren't only the problem, but also needs to provide the solution. And, and instrumental in that has uh, people like, like uh, Kofi Annan, who I work closely with, been in, in kind of recognizing the fact that young people have a voice, young people have uh, a different experience of, of how life is than, than what other generations have. We, like when people raised their hands earlier to to see who was on Facebook, it was kind of from, from this point of view, pretty evident that uh, more young people were on Facebook than, than some of the older generations. And we have a different way of, of interacting with each other across international borders, across um, various barriers. But then the question also is uh, how um, does companies and organizations like Facebook uh, play a role in, in the politics of life? How do they play a role in, um, in how we interact with each other and who gets to interact with each other? And so um, a lot of my work with uh, technology companies uh, is about trying to break down those bubbles, those barriers that uh, algorithmically are, are created that uh, we create by, the, by virtue of, of how human beings interact. We have a tendency to be selective of our friends. We have a tendency to select to, to interact with friends who we agree with, who are similar to us in many ways. And so the challenge is to, to break that down and try to get people uh, to interact with people who are radically different from them um, in healthy ways. And so there, there's ways of, of building towards that and ways in which um, uh, the political square can, can support uh, young people in doing that. And I think um, one of the problems that we're seeing in interacting with the political sphere um, is a generational issue. It's an understanding of, of how um, society online as well as society offline is changing and how that works. But also the fact that you know we have a tendency to segment the way in which um, these structures work. We have um, segmented civil society, mm, politics, business, and media, and, and then kind of general citizens into various groups in some sort of way. And, I think an important step we need to make is, is to break down those barriers and see how can uh, civil society work, society work more closely with business, how can civil society work more closely with politics, and how can we you know, try to, to find ways of uh, working more closely with the media and changing and challenging narratives that are promoted. So talk, talk a little bit, Bjorn, about the media, because that you've, you've sort of set out a a scenario where people are talking to each other despite differences, but the media, if I may say so, I'm a former journalist, focuses on the differences. Does yeah. that help? So, so as a current journalist, uh, uh, I think um, one, of, one of the things that we are seeing and one of the things that are being taught in, in journalism schools everywhere is to always focus on the conflict, conflict sells. And I think um, one of the problems we're seeing in the media is, is the economic model of how it works, which also has been challenged by, by the birth of the internet, where we are uh, essentially in, in kind of clickbait territory still, uh, where uh, newspapers depend upon selling ads, and so does social media, and, and you know everyone wants to keep your attention for as long as possible so you can see as many ads as possible. Um, 
which might not be the best model in terms of uh, figuring out how society works. And so what I want to challenge in, in how that works is really kind of the financial models that are behind mm -hmm. how media and, and social media works and, and looking at the fact that a lot of a lot of the things that are shaping society right now, a lot of media and a lot of social media is funded by venture capitalists who are essentially in it for the money. So, you know, Facebook, for instance, which has had a lot of attention in this town last night, but also um, internationally for, for the last couple of weeks in terms of uh, their involvement with Cambridge Analytica and sure. uh, the various elections and, and referendums in, in the UK and the US and in the rest of the world. I think it's it's kind of worth looking at what what are these companies? They are money-making vessels mm -hmm. for, for the investors. And so my question is how do we as civil society, how do we uh, as politicians, as people who don't necessarily have financial interests as our main goal but has a societal interest as our main goal, how do we get involved? How do we invest ourselves? How do we um, try to make an impact in terms of pushing these platforms that are now, politically speaking, uh, kind of more powerful than a lot of governments. Right. Um, how do we work to, to make those healthier uh, and pursue the betterment of society, the betterment right. of humanity rather than you know someone's wallet? Quick, quick, uh, quick money. So uh, building journalism, which is really in integrity-based and ethical journalism. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and there are there are uh, examples there, of that there's, across there's the world. There's a lot of good examples of that, and, and I think are. it's a growing field. And I think, like again, bringing it back to to how young people and, and older generations can interact, I think a lot of that can be building on, on good mentorship solutions, um, where you know established um, figures who who are re well respected can lend their experience and yeah. expertise to young people in order to build new platforms um, for and essentially enabling young people to tell their stories and tell uh, their version of reality. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Thank you very much. Intergenerational cooperation also there. So uh, Fadi, uh, your opinions on what you, because you're there, out there, I think you've just flown in from one of the countries uh, in, in the Middle East, in the MENA region. Uh, just give us your insights into what you're hearing about from young people, about the issues we've raised, employment, security, networks. Please pick up, pick up, yeah, please do. All right, so... It's on? It's on? Um, all right, first of all, thank you all for being here. I'm going to kind of present uh, what I feel from a broad spectrum of youth is their vision for the future, and then present kind of two things that I think are critical for both people in the Middle East to do and for the people across Europe to do. And to begin with that, I think you guys need to know um, my credibility in speaking about this. Um, when I first finished college, I was an activist. I've been shot, I've been imprisoned. I've lost some of the people that I care deeply about. After that, and after spending a year, um, spending years in kind of organizing on the ground, whether it's nonviolent protests or so forth, I said, this isn't working. Let's go to international law, European law, human rights, and work in that aspect. And I worked for a few years in that direction. And of course, one of the key focuses we had was in Palestine. I'm from Palestine. I come from there, was to ensure that we had access to our natural resources because they're being extracted by Israel. 
And one of the main blockers to preventing that, although it's a key aspect of international law, was the European Union at the UN Human Rights Council. So I said, okay, clearly the international law and advocacy perspective isn't going to move us there. What else can we do? I entered into the entrepreneurial field. Um, we founded a company uh, focused on renewable energy. That company was going to produce 20% of the energy demands of the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Of course, due to corruption in the Palestinian Authority, in relation to a French company, actually, they prevented us from getting the necessary paperwork to move forward, and they stole the project and conducted it with a European company. Then moving after that, the question became, well, if one wants to be, I'm a physicist by training, I studied nuclear physics, and the question became, I remembered uh, when I was 12 years old, I was in Morocco with a football team, and we were on a train that was going uh, from Rabat to Casablanca. And after that trip, we went with my soccer team, my football team, to Europe. And on that whole train ride, we were discussing if only there was an open train that could take us from Rabat to Algeria, all the way to Amman on the other side. What if there was an Arab Union just like there is a European Union? And I remember me and my friends on the football team, we had tears because we went from Belgium to the Netherlands on train and we didn't know when we crossed the border. And so the question for me came after those experiences became how do we figure out truly honestly without cliches, what do youth across the Middle East want? And from that experimental aspect, I spoke with over 7,000 young men and women across the region from every country in a very systematic pedagogical process of dialogue to understand what people truly want across the region. And in those conversations, which were hours long conversations with many groups that took a long time, we came down to three key points. Those three points are freedom. And not freedom just in its cliche definition, freedom in the sense that every individual and community should be capable of defining the laws and rules and regulations that define their lives. It's as simple as that. People should define their own laws. But then we go to justice. That was the second thing that all of the youth across the region came across on. And justice here, we defined it as two key principles. First, equality, and the second principle is the sense that Rawlsian justice, the sense that everyone deserves the same opportunity to achieve their potential. So many youth across the Middle East don't just feel like there's discrimination within their own countries, they feel like they don't have equal opportunities to achieve their <laughs> potentials because of lack of access to key uh, health or key education benefits. And the third is human dignity. And if I was here uh, to tell you all to sit with dignity, you would understand what that means. It's kind of instinctive what it means to sit with dignity, to feel empowered. But at its core, it means not to feel humiliated. The question then becomes, if we have a 20-year vision to create a social contract based on freedom, justice, and dignity across the Middle East, and to transform the Middle East into something similar to a type of European Union, I think that vision is possible. But first of all, let me ask everyone in the Middle East, from the Middle East in this room, would you agree that you would love that future, to see that future in 10 or 20 years? Raise your hands. So, you know, a, a consensus almost. So it's not hard to define what youth 
across the Middle East want. What's really hard to define, and this is the second point, is how to get there. And there's a lot of discussion, I think, that happens generally about one aspect, which is the soft aspect, I would say, of transforming societies. This is the conversation, the connection, uh, journalism, and fixing it, so forth. But if we want to be honest with ourselves, and here I speak mainly to the audience from the Middle East, change is about power. And power is defined on four pillars. The first pillar is economic. The second pillar is military. The third pillar is organizational capacity, how you organize the culture of organization, how you build connections. The fourth is allies and soft power. A lot of the conversation is shifted to allies and soft power, and very little conversation is discussed about the other transformational mechanisms to focus how do we change the balance of power when it comes to economic control. And here this takes me back to the European Union. Yesterday we had a lot of discussions about financing and how difficult it is to get financing to keep projects and so forth. Let me give you this number that I take out from the World Bank. The profits of European extractive industries that they make from the Middle East are 20 times the amount of money and funding and humanitarian and aid that go to the Middle East. So if they were just to give us let's say one out of 25% of the profits they make from the extractive industries from our region. Imagine what would happen, how transformative that would be. That would double all of the aid going, including to organizations that work on youth aspects. So there's also, we need to understand that this is not just an issue of demanding support. This is also demanding our rights. Because that's also connected to governments in our regions that are corrupt and that are oppressive. And here we also need to speak about uh, another point, which I think is equally as important, which is the weapons sales mm -hmm. that happened to some of the most horrendous regimes across the region. And I'm going to here speak about four quick examples. The quick, first example... Quick, uh, please, Fadi, yeah. because I'd like to open the floor. Yes, yeah, so I'll be, I'll be quick with these four examples. The, the four examples are, number one, is Europe a partner for peace or a partner in crime? We look at things like um, essentially what happened following the U.S. decision to uh, end the Iran deal. Why wasn't the European Union prepared already to deal in terms of how to challenge this back? The European Union was not prepared. It seems like the U.S. is going to succeed in imposing sanctions, and that's going to maybe cause a devastating war. Let's remember that the war between Iran and Iraq years ago cost one million lives. Let's also look at the situation in uh, Gaza and the deaths that happened, which is an issue that's clear to people across the region. In Gaza, European countries, the majority, did not vote for an independent investigation, an independent investigation by the UN. They weren't asked to take sides. They were asked to allow an independent investigation. All of these, I will, to save time, I will not go through a lot of the examples. But what I think we need to understand is we're all connected. You know, what happens in the Middle East reflects itself Absolutely. on the ground in Europe. And we need to change the power balance to fix that. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you very much. The only hope I have is that the Iran deal situation is not actually finished yet. It's not defined yet. So hoping that that will continue. And on Gaza, you're absolutely right. The divisions within Europe are painful to, to watch. Uh, let's open the floor to questions and comments from yourselves. My only demand, and I'm tough on that, 
is that you be short and snappy. Uh, if you have a comment, uh, please make it as well. And if you have a question to one of our panelists, please go ahead and do so. Uh, raise your hand. We have colleagues with uh, microphones who will come to you. And uh, I'd like to kick off now uh, with some of you coming forward and responding, commenting on uh, what you've just heard. Let's go. Yes. Uh, so please identify yourself very quickly. Thank you. Just keep your hand up if you have, and can I see a show of hands actually about the number of people who want to come in at this time? Brilliant, please. Thank you. Uh, my name is Negar Mortazavi. Um, Fari, I just want you to follow up on the points that you were mentioning, the last points, and what you actually think are concrete steps that you think should be done from the European Union, this city, or each the, the major European countries for the points that you were mentioning, the concrete steps or actual examples that have been successful in the past. Yeah. We're going to take a couple of questions and then come to the floor. Uh, Good morning, thank you. My name is Jamila. I'm a European Union leader from the Netherlands, originally from Morocco, so I have connections with both sides. Um, and I was wondering, because we're exactly a year away from the European elections next year, um, and I'm sure you're uh, lobbying uh, from the foundation to see what you can do on the subjects, on the relations between Europe and the MENA region. Um, so my question is, are you and what are you hoping to get into election programs and into policies next year? And to Esmet and Fadi, what would you like uh, the lobbyists to get in those election programs next year for the next five years of European Parliament? Let's take one more question and then we'll do a second round. So there's the gentleman right at the back over there. I, I will come to all of you, don't, don't get impatient. Or do get impatient, that's fine. <laughs> Bart Sheftrick at the European Commission's European Political Strategy Center. Uh, thank you very much for all of your great insights. Question for Fadi and Esmat. What is, um, if you could talk about a general consensus view in the, among the youth in the region, what is the view of the Arab Spring experience? Arguably, uh, some observers would say that now, seven years later, there's less freedom, less justice, less respect for human dignity in the region. Is this, how is the 2011 experience viewed? Is it the first phase of a longer term process? Uh, too much hope uh, without uh, you know, the practical steps that, that you, uh, you discussed? Um, what, what is the view, uh, if you could speak to it? Mm -hmm. Thank you. So should we start with Esmet now? Esmet, would you like to take this question? Um, all right, thank you so much for your questions. Uh, for your question, what I would basically be hoping for is, is a new uh, phase of, of politicians who are willing to sit down in a dialogue and, and interact with young people without having the hierarchical level or without having uh, the, the gap. I would like more of a dialogue that is, uh, that is about listening and understanding. And it's also about giving confidence to youth and making them feeling being taken seriously. When I worked in the Africa EU-Africa initiative, one of the main things was about, we were 36 uh, people selected from 8,000 applicants and we sat with presidents and commissioners in the African Union and in the European Union. And the main thing was about to t take out the idea of the donor-recipient relationship that everyone is feeling, being an African or being an, a European. And the, the beauty about that was that we were able to meet politicians and to ask them questions, and they respond to us. 
it's more of, of an informal kind of dialogue, but it helped us in writing initiatives to propose to heads of states right after which we did. Now have you seen any follow-up of any of this? Well, there is a meeting with Mogherini tomorrow, I think, and, and YPII is So you is keep pressing point. the point, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the question regarding the Arab Spring, um, well, I see that the Arab Spring is an, was an opportunity for me and a huge challenge. And I think it's the same thing for my entire generation because many people had their hopes on the peak and now it's going down. Yes, there's less freedom, um, mainly freedom of expression. And the opportunity in that was that we were able to discover how is it, how does our society look like when we have a huge diversion and differences in, in opinions, when everyone will take a side, especially when we had the elections after in 2013, 2012, these, where we had too much political changes, different presidents all the time. In Egypt, across I'm the region, Across the region. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking particularly about Egypt, but having worked in a young Arab voices in the region as well, I saw that the change happened when, when youth and at young age was very observing and, and, and also willing to, to participate in a dialogue and to express their point of view. So the difference between 2011 and, and now is that if you ask young people about how they think of the political situation, they would have an answer and they would not be afraid of saying it. Right. So mm -hmm. it actually opened up the space for people to to talk and to think and to reflect on what they want on the, in the economy, on the politics, on the social change, on the arts, the, the type of arts and the creative uh, media content that we're producing now is totally different. It's more representative. Um, the kind of initiatives and the, the market that is opening for, for startups and so on, these are spaces that when young people in the Arab Spring felt empowered, they felt more encouraged that they need to to do that. So right. it's, it created a need and it also created a huge motivation. And, and created expectations, I imagine, as well, of change. Fadi, would you uh, comment on that as well? Then I turn to Elizabeth and Bjorn. Um, yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say about the Arab Spring is for a lot of people who I spoke about, they see it um, as a defeat, but they don't see themselves giving up anytime soon. A lot of people see it as a revolutionary moment, just like the French Revolution, which took years to actually materialize into something fruitful, but not as something that has convinced them to give up. That said, though, I think we need to be aware that there is a very strong propaganda slash news machine. Mm -hmm. Most of the news networks, a lot of the Facebook ads are funded by governments who seek to convince people of helplessness, mm -hmm. the idea that nothing can change. And this is done by regimes from the Iranian regime to the Saudi regime, uh, from Israel to uh, even in Algeria. You know, And I think this learned helplessness is important to try to fight against. Mm -hmm. um, Thank you. I I take away, take yeah. a, trying to take away the agency of people. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, a disempowering people. Right, right. Thank you. Uh, Bjorn, and then I'll turn to Elizabeth. Do you have any comments? Yeah, I don't really have much to add. Uh, but um, I, I work a lot on, on North Africa and, and uh, Libya in particular. And uh, the, the Arab Spring and, and 2011 kind of uh, led to, to a fairly chaotic situation in many places. But I also think there, there's glimmers of hope there. And I think uh, it's also a, a thing that uh, showed people that they have agency um, in the region, in their mm. own lives, 
in trying to point out which direction um, they want to go in. Unfortunately, um, in many cases, that's been hijacked by, um, well, old dudes with bad intentions. Uh, and so um, I think even though the political leadership has, has gone in a more repressive uh, direction, still there's, there's a generation of young people now who experienced uh, the spring and who are waiting for summer. Not, not giving up, waiting for summer. Thank you. Elizabeth. Um, I think the uh, next European elections, since you, you were born in Morocco, I understand, in Amsterdam, but you have Moroccan origin. Yes, I was born in Morocco and you know, I'm French, so. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, I, th I think we, we must use the next European elections to uh, uh, promote the debate on the way the European Union talks and acts with and not only to African uh, countries and civil societies. I think we need to have a complete change in our approach. Uh, for example, in the economic field, to go from trade, trade is okay, of course, to investment. What we need is to have cross-investment and especially to give jobs, to promote jobs. And investment in the private sector would be with, of course, the transfer of uh, learning and, uh, and, and technology will be the best way to fight corruption. Because when you have only a donor approach, what do you do? You give uh, money to states. And very often, you know, it goes to uh, national budgets when they have a gap to fill. And sometimes, you know, it promotes, of course, the uh, uh, not very sound relations, and you were very talkative about that. So I think we have to promote private investment and public investment, uh, rather than uh, focus only, only uh, on trade. And the best way to do that, of course, is to break barriers uh, between not only uh, the political field and the civil society, but also with the business as well. They have to feel responsible mm. for what is happening. Mark Zuckerberg was yesterday in the European Parliament. He spent his time excusing himself. Now he's got to act. You know? And uh, this is why we, uh, when I arrived at the uh, Annalyn Foundation, I said we should have a partnership with Facebook. And we should expand that because they have a lot to ask to be forgiven, you know, for what mm. they've done with our yeah. <laughs> private atonement <laughs> data. So <laughs> I think we should, uh, you know, press on that for them to be really not only to promote, of course, the necessary uh, regulations and the protection of, uh, of our private uh, uh, data, but also for them to be more uh, uh, proactive in the in the dialogue mm -hmm. because most of the negative things that come from the media come from the social media mm -hmm. all these uh, can you can you imagine that we can talk about alternative facts mm -hmm. how can that exist alternative yeah. facts but it, it, it's 1984 know? isn't and, it uh, we have a very one of the most prominent uh, 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 western leaders who is producing alternative facts mm. every day <laughs> 
So and <laughs> we've got to, f and the social media is the best way to do that. And also to try to encourage, that's what we try to do in the Annaline Foundation, to support, financially support, uh, youngsters who want to have a more positive approach of journalism. Mm -hmm. we, we know a lot of them. Uh, they are winners of our <laughs> media award. But, uh, you know, they are trying. There are uh, lots of youngsters saying we, we, we just cannot convey only catastrophic news. Of course, medias are not here to say, to talk about the trains who arrive on time. Uh, but there are very positive uh, initiatives. And uh, that's what I think we should, uh, right. we should do. And put that in the European debates, in the election. Now, in France, we have this from uh, Emmanuel Macron of uh, citizen uh, uh, dialogue. Yeah. Uh, we are in the um, Annaline Foundation and Europartner, which is another NGO which I chair and created. We are mm -hmm. members of that. But it's very important that we have cross-European uh, initiatives uh, to promote that kind Absolutely. of Absolutely. And, and they are happening, Elizabeth. They are yes. actually happening. Yes. And we need to make them more visible and more active. Um, Yes, thank you so much. Let's take a couple more questions. I, I see three hands, four hands, five hands. You'll have to be very, very short. I want to finish at 11. So would you please bring your, the microphone here, Saskia? Just keep your hand up so she doesn't actually know. Yes. I'm not sure I'll be able to take everyone, but please go ahead. Hi, my name is Ekop. I am part of Young Mediterranean Voices. I have a question for Asmat and Fadi. Uh, guys, uh, tell me, how do you think, uh, how do you feel? Because like we are uh, going on high-level events, uh, doing a lot of stuff in Brussels, and uh, no, we have this sort of dichotomy. Because as European Union, uh, EU speaks about peace, cooperation, and this sort of stuff, uh, where the member states of the EU, especially UK, France, or Belgium, are uh, cashing in on selling arms actually to your region. and. If I remember correctly, in past five years, uh, the sales uh, of arms uh, to Middle East uh, right. have doubled. Yeah. Right now, it's 25 or 32 percent of uh, global arms uh, sales. How yeah. do you think about it? Uh, you know, that's that? a very interesting question. Arms sales from Europe across the world yeah. are, are very, very high. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's Asia is the same thing, so it's a very good point to make. Thank you very much for that. There was a gentleman who had put up his hand. Please keep your hand up. Hi. Um, well, thanks all for, for the very interesting conversation. I would have a um, question for probably for Esmat and Fadi. Um, I, um, so my name is Vittorio Capici. I've, I, I, I work for the European Center for Development Policy Management, the CDPM. And um, I've, I've had the chance to be uh, in another very wanton region in Africa, the Horn of Africa, for for a couple of years um, and I, what I experienced as a white young European is really a question of uh, structural racism in, in the institutions, uh, in European institutions, in international institutions dealing with these countries. Um, so I would be very interested in knowing um, what, um, if a, a, such an issue uh, like the one of structural racism, so recognizing white privilege is something that is um, discussed about in 
youth forums um, of the kind you present. Right. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much for that question. There was a hand here, Isabel. Please, can you keep your hand up so we know? No, it's Isabel. Yes, thank you. Yeah, hi, I'm Isabel from the British Council. Uh, just a, a quick question uh, uh, in relation to the Young Arab Voice and Young Midterms uh, projects. Um, how these two projects enable you to better address your issue with uh, politicians or with the media? Uh, which skills uh, it gave you? Just want to know the effect. Of Thank you. Project. Uh, just give the yeah, give the yeah, microphone yeah. to the lady there. Uh, hello, I'm Fatima, young military voice. Um, I just have a question uh, for us as uh, young leaders. Um, how can we uh, really fill this gap between South and North, uh, or whatever we call it? And, and, since, and we still have this problem of uh, mobility. Like a lot of uh, uh, young uh, leaders, they lost a lot of uh, opportunities because of visa, for example. Mm -hmm. So for me, I lost like three opportunities by Annalyn Foundation just because the visa was not issuing for me. So how can we actually um, work or have a new policy right. regarding this? Thank you very much. Mary, please. Can you just pass the microphone on to Mary? Mary, put your hand up. Thank you. Uh, Mary Fitzgerald, I'm an EYL and I uh, work on Libya. And just following on from some of the comments from, from Fadi and Asmat in particular, related to seven years after the events, uh, the many dubbed the um, Arab Spring, we see the region drifting, tipping, falling back into authoritarianism. And it's a new type of authoritarianism. So some of the tools, Ismad, you talked about in terms of social media, etc., are being used by the very regimes now that people rebelled um, against. And we see also, um, in the case of Egypt, a regime that is even more repressive than the one that went before. Um, and what I'm struck by in, in Libya is uh, a growing number of Libyans, including young Libyans. So I think assuming that youth in the region want to break free of those authoritarian paradigms, there's quite a substantial number that actually are falling back into, mm -hmm. we need the strongman, we want security because they see security will enable them to achieve some of the things in terms of entrepreneurship and economic empowerment, right. etc. In Europe, I've had too many conversations with European officials when it comes to the region um, that basically remind me that too many Europeans still fall for the strongman paradigm, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So they're either very old-fashioned and the, they think strongmen are what are required in the region, or they will say in relation to Egypt, yes, you know, Sisi, it's rather unfortunate, his record on human rights, etc. but supposedly stability, security, so we'll deal with him for now. So my question is, how do you break out of that strongman paradigm in the region and also in terms of how Europe interacts with the region? Excellent. Uh, I saw, yes, the lady over here, and then I'm going to turn to the, uh, to the panel. Yes, please. Um, hello, I'm Raba Salah Dean from Lebanon. Uh, young Mediterranean voice. My comment is to Fadi. Uh, you mentioned uh, about the uh, Arab Union and it's, it will be great if we had uh, a union, but do you think that um, it's possible? I see in Europe every, every country is just thinking, thinking about making their country, uh, their, each government thinking about making their country better and more prosperous. Prosperous, but the scene in Arab countries is uh, is absent. They only think about corruption, uh, which is uh, destroying the economy of the country. So I think there must be a pressure on the Arab countries by Europe and and other countries 
to stop them. I know what Israel done, and I agree with you. But I think the, the, the countries in the Arab region are just putting their failure on Israel and the, the, uh, the region countries. Uh, they just do things bad, and it's not our, our problem. But it's uh, lack the problem of, is, is lack only, of solidarity. Only, yeah, yeah, it's okay. only their, the, the cause of yeah. their corruption, which is make which right. is making us stand and not moving forward. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I really need to go to the panel. But your questions, all of your questions, are very, very relevant, and I want our panel to come back and answer them. So, Fadi, I'm going to go linear this way, starting with you, and then Esmat, Bjorn, and then Elizabeth. Please. Right, Don't have to address each and every question. Okay, select exactly. what you think you really want to address. They're I mean, the, exactly. There are a lot of questions, and I'd love for those who ask them to come and speak with me afterwards a if coffee I don't break. get to them here. There's um, a coffee break. I'm, I'm going to try to answer some of the key ones. Uh, some people ask about what the EU should do, and I want to be clear that now giving a policy description will take forever, but I would say the EU should go from crisis management of U.S. attacks, even on things like the Paris Climate Agreement, for, you know, to counterbalancing the U.S. Europe needs to lead. If it doesn't lead, it's allowing the U.S. to continue to destroy the world under this new administration. To ask about the next election um, and what needs to happen in terms of arms sales, the European Parliament already passed certain resolutions on sanctions on certain regimes, particularly regarding what's happening in Yemen. I think European leaders should follow the voices of their people, similarly on Israel, and begin moving towards accountability on all fronts, from supporting the International Criminal Court and holding key leaders accountable to imposing these sanctions. I want to go to then the issue of authoritarianism. I think one generally sees, I personally support the strong woman doctrine, not the strong man doctrine. I'd love to see that across the Middle East, but I think what we need to distinguish between is that what people see in authoritarian leaders isn't the fact that they beat people down and kill them. They like two things. These people at least seem like they have a vision for the future, and these people seem decisive and effective. And I think that's what, if one would have a deep conversation with youth across the region, they would like to see in new leaders. And we also need to forget that what other options are they given? Some people see this as the option because it's the only option that they can imagine. Just like Hume said in his philosophical treatise, people can only believe in what they can have seen. And right now, no one's giving them any other options. It's up to all the young leaders in this room to give them that option. And on the Arab leaders' uh, example and them using Israel as a fig leaf, Right now, they've gone beyond using Israel as a fig leaf. They normalize with Israel. They work with Israel. They buy weapons with, from Israel. They are collaborators in crime. And I think we need to be very clear in saying that. Um, the Arab regimes today, the vast majority of them are not standing with the Palestinian people. And last but not least, on the idea of a possible union. The union will be built from the bottom up. And it's important to remember that the idea of a European Union was put forward in the middle of World War II. And I think the idea of an Arab Union should be put forward in the middle of the disasters we face today. And sorry if I missed uh, any other questions. No, that's fine. When you talk about sanctions, obviously the one concern some of us have are sanctions if they're sort of blanket sanctions, a blunt instrument can also affect people. So you have to be very targeted in the, weapons, you know, yeah, stop selling. This is important. We're not asking Europe, and I, I just want to add this point. We're not begging Europe to come and save us. We're not asking Europe to do things it shouldn't do. The leader of, and the definer of the philosophy of nonviolence said one's responsibility is to ensure that you are not lending yourself to the wrong that you condemn. 
Today, Europe is lending itself to all the wrongs that it condemns. It's complicit. We're asking it to remove complicity. Simple as that. Thank you. Thank you, Fadi. Strong message, and I think something we need to hear here from, from people like yourselves. So, Esmet, please. Um, thanks for the questions. I'm not going to cover what Fadi covers because I agree with him about the skills that we've gained from working with the younger voices, and I think me and my peer colleagues here from the YAV would agree with that. Um, it was... It was an empowering experience to sit and feel like there is a safe space where you can structure your thoughts and express them through an argument related to emotion that is relevant to our lives and our, to our societies. So the idea of Young Arab Voices that it was working with universities in particular to form different debate clubs inside universities and organizations and these debate clubs compete and then we compete on a national level each country and then on a regional level on the the southern countries so uh, the kind of skills we gain here is to critical think and to to actually engage in to have an evidence-based argument uh, some of the debate types like the British parliamentary for example would ask for uh, suggesting a policy recommendation or a policy change so it's also kind of simulation that puts youth, including myself and, and my peer colleagues here, into an experience where we are kind of like a decision maker here, where we are criticizing something that is existing, but not only criticizing it, but suggesting something that to, to change it. Um, about the issues of mobility, what we are doing in the Young Med Voices, which, is, which I consider is a golden opportunity, is that we get to push for the idea and to highlight that we have so many mobility chances and that we need a cultural passport, an education passport. Um, what we were doing in the African Union Initiative, for example, is to question and, and to remind and bring always on the top of the table the idea of the African passport, since all the African countries, I think except for the Maghreb, have a lot of freedom limitations of visa and so on. So we just keep pushing for it and also now with the technology and the Erasmus virtual exchange it's 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 a great opportunity to be able to participate in in, in dialogue and intercultural dialogue and re without moving from where you are like remotely right and and it's going to save it's it's also not only mobility but also financial issues for people not being able to acquire visa and travel abroad for for different um, economic reasons um, I think I'll just Thanks. pass it on. Thank you time. very much, Esmet. Yes, thank you very much. Bjorn, please. Thank you. Um, I think all, all of the questions are interrelated because, well, everything is connected to everything. Um, and, and I think one of the kind of unifying factors in, in a lot of, of the concerns that we're having is the fact that we in, in the political sector and in, in the media world, etc., have a tendency to think very short term. Um, we think up until the next election cycle, we think up until the next news cycle sometimes. Um, and so we make short-term investments. We make short-term investments in, in weapon systems because that gives uh, very um, quick returns on investment. Um, we, we earn money fast. Like Norway, where I'm from, is uh, one of the largest arms exporters per exactly. capita. So is Sweden, where I happen to live. Um, Norway just sold like weapons for a couple of trillions, I think, to Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. uh, which is massively, massively problematic for a country that promotes itself as a 
peace-building yeah. nation, right? It's we also but schizophrenic, isn't it? Yeah, and, and, yeah. and you know, at the same time, the former prime minister of Norway is the secretary general of NATO, and there, there's a lot of very strange things going on in terms of um, how people are trying to get political power and how they're trying to get an economic power um, by investing in war rather than investing in peace. And I think peace is a much more long-term investment and a much healthier investment. And I think it kind of boils down to the, the, the dichotomy over um, security versus safety. And I think we have so far had a kind of focus on, on building security institutions. We are you know, building military institutions, we are building arms uh, trade, we are building uh, an economy formed around the oil industry, which is dependent upon there being instability to keep oil prices high. Um, and, and that essentially leads to the allowance for um, strongmen in the MENA region um, and um, more focus on security and stability rather than on actual safety and the sensation that we are safe with each other, which also leads to things like the mobility issue, right. uh, which is interconnected with uh, the structural um, racism that we are seeing essentially um, across Europe, where if you happen to have a passport from, you know, a couple of kilometers across the Mediterranean, uh, you're not allowed to travel in Europe, which mm. is, in my world, insane, because, you know, I'm freely allowed to travel wherever I want to as exactly. someone from Norway. And uh, someone from, you know, elsewhere shouldn't have lesser abilities to do that simply because of this weird dichotomy that we have created ourselves by making short-term investments in, in war rather than long-term investments in peace. Thank you very much, Bjorn. Elizabeth, last words. Um, as, as far as uh, on mobility, which is absolutely essential, of course, uh, um, naturally, uh, conflicts, terrorism, are uh, the uh, strongest obstacles to uh, mobility. So how do we overcome that? And the fear that is spreading everywhere, especially in the European Union. I think we have to invent you know, new uh, uh, ways of mobility. I was talking about the Erasmus of Association, but why not spread in the whole of the European Union the uh, passport of talents that was voted by the French National Assembly, and I was on the initiative of that in mm. 2016, because it addresses, you know, those who really want to do something. Uh, not only entrepreneurs, but also cre uh, artists, you know, and youth that engage in project. It's the best way to say, if we open in that way our borders, then it, we are not going to open them to what they fear, you know, terrorists and that. We open that to people on both sides who want to do something for mm -hmm. peace and to counter terrorism and, and, and radicalization by, by the net, of course. So uh, I think it's through initiatives like that that would be um, uh, productive in the in in the short uh, in the short term. Of course, the question of arms and uh, and and of uh, uh, you know authoritarian leaders is, is also a question of peace. And therefore, if we empower youth mm -hmm. uh, to be actors of peace, uh, then uh, we th this is what we we try to do. Now, my last word will be to say that we have key uh, 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 events in front of us, mm -hmm. 
uh, and we have to take advantage of these events inside the European Union and with Africa to promote another uh, approach between uh, relations towards, uh, uh, between Europe and, and, and Africa. We have the, uh, uh, the Cotonou agreements, which have the merit to exist, but which have been very criticized because it's the, the eyes of the Europeans saying to the Africans what they should do. Mm -hmm. Now, if we want to responsibilize the Africans in their own, you know, what, to do what they should do, nobody can do uh, uh, in their place. For example, opening their borders, having more uh, uh, cooperation between them. The only way to obtain that is really to say, what do you want us to do mm -hmm. to help you do that? And not, what this is what the European Union thinks you should do. And it is uh, a new equal partnership. Right. Uh, there is a, you know, there is, there is money in Africa. The problem is that it is not, <laughs> it is not well allocated. But there is a lot of money. There right. are lots of people who have, uh, which have money. The, uh, uh, the money that is sent by uh, the uh, emigrants here in Europe to Remittances, yeah. is five times, you know, uh, the uh, so aid we have that to is given. work on that. And I think that we, the Cotonou agreements will be renegotiated by the European Union. There is on the 28th of May a meeting in Lomé between the European Union and the African Union. And we've got to say our word on that. And for our organization, Shanda, uh, we've got to break barriers between the economic approach and the cultural approach. In Friends of Europe, there will be next week a great, uh, uh, you know, meeting on uh, EU-African relationship on development uh, development days. It is. Yes. I think we have to use this meeting to say, let us uh, learn from the intercultural dialogue what has been said here, and to promote another uh, approach on uh, economic uh, on the economic side, and to promote not only short-term vision but also middle and long-term vision. Right. Uh, and this is, uh, I think, what we now, what should be our task in the next months and years. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. Uh, getting rid of the, the barriers or the silos between economic and cultural uh, in our discussions with, uh, with Africa. Thank you very much for all the different ideas that all of you have contributed to so constructively. Uh, please join me in thanking our panelists. So I had promised you provocative conversations and interesting, uh, valuable new insights, fresh insights. Now I'm happy to say that we'll have coffee, but please be back uh, at 11.15 because this conversation will continue. We have another panel which is going to be about walking the talk, actually doing what we keep saying we are going to do. So please, I look forward to seeing you back here. Thank you.